If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. In January 1961, upon his arrival in the White House, new US President John F. Kennedy inherited a plan from his predecessor, Dwight D. Eisenhower. The Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, had devised a scheme. In Guatemala, there were a group of Cubans who had fled their homeland out of disgust at leader Fidel Castro's policies. The CIA would train, fund and equip these exiles and then assist them in an amphibious invasion backed by US strikes on the Cuban Air Force. The aim? To provoke an uprising that would bring about the overthrow of Fidel Castro. After grappling with this difficult inheritance during the weeks following his inauguration, Kennedy decided to give the invasion his formal blessing but only on the understanding that US involvement in the operation would be hidden. Shortly after midnight, on Monday the 17th of April, at the Bay of Pigs, an inlet on the island's southwestern coast, the operation began. Unfortunately for the exiles, the entire mission was a disaster from start to finish. Within hours, the invaders had come under heavy fire and two of their ships had foundered. Far from storming inland to a popular welcome, the exiles were bogged down on the beaches. 
Castro's troops raced to the scene and the promised US air support failed to materialise. Within three days, it was all over. I'm Eleanor Evans, and in the second episode of this four-part series, exploring the Cuban Missile Crisis, we'll be hearing from our three expert historians on the vital fallout of the Bay of Pigs, what it meant for the relationship between Cuba and the USA, and how USSR leader Nikita Khrushchev seized upon the opportunity to gain advantage in the Cold War. We'll be exploring the motives of Khrushchev and Castro in secretly placing Soviet nuclear missiles in Cuba, and how the discovery of the weapons stretched already taught diplomatic relations to breaking point, bringing the world to the brink of destruction. First up in this episode, you'll hear from Alex von Tunzelman, historian and author of Red Heat, Conspiracy, Murder and the Cold War in the Caribbean. I asked Alex to tell us more about how Fidel Castro regarded the Bay of Pigs debacle. So the Bay of Pigs invasion, yes, this took place in April 1961. And the idea really was for a sort of force of supposed to be all of Cuban exiles who were anti-Castro. Um, invading Cuba, 1,400 people. In fact, in practice, there were quite a lot of Americans in those troops as well. And this invasion really was a complete military disaster from start to finish. Almost every aspect of operational security and everything was um, mishandled from the beginning. Um, It was, you know, really quite poorly planned. And I think, you know, there's a lot of blame to go around about exactly why that happened and by whom. But Fidel Castro was very well aware that this invasion was coming. And crucially, um, you know, he was so aware of it that actually on the night before it happened, he made a very crucial announcement and speech where he said, for the first time, he declared himself publicly to be a socialist. He said, what they cannot bear is that we have made a socialist revolution under the nose of the United States. Now, the reason this is the first time he had said it, looking at the record, is because he was not previously a socialist and it was not a socialist revolution. But this was very opportunistic. What he was doing by declaring this really was signalling to the Soviet Union that Cuba now was prepared to cut off with the US and become um, an ally of the Soviet Union. So that's a very kind of crucial political moment. It doesn't actually necessarily signify any particular political change in Castro's ideology, but certainly a very significant change of behaviour. And Fidel was not particularly worried about the prospect of this invasion because he had actually prepared for it extremely broadly, Um, although there were certain, you know, kind of slip-ups in the Cuban response as well. In fact, the invasion was really quite easily defeated and he'd prepared for it extremely well also from a publicity point of view. So he was able to make enormous international meat out of everything that had happened, parade the invaders on television, really portray them as American stooges and all of this. You know, he took them to a football stadium and shouted at them on live television for four days and, you know, had them in prison, then ransomed them for huge amounts of money back to the US. So he was able to make huge capital out of, <laughs> capital being a somewhat ironic way to call that, um, he was able to make huge gains politically out of this invasion, really shore himself up in power very, very effectively. Hugely humiliating for John F. Kennedy um, as his first big move in office. Um, And you can really see, again, that John F. Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy reacted very strongly to this by really becoming even more determined to get rid of Fidel Castro. It was very personal. You know, they really had a personal sense that he was humiliating them because he put himself very much at the centre of that response. Let's hear more on the Kennedy's response to the disaster. 
Here's Mark White, Professor of History at Queen Mary London and the author of several books on the American presidency and the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, I mean, in terms of the Bay of Pigs, it's the first major decision Kennedy needs to make during his presidency, certainly in terms of foreign policy, which is, you know, do I give the go-ahead for this operation? What we know now is, um, you know, what, what Kennedy defenders used to say is, oh, yeah, it was a mistake, the Bay of Pigs, because the operation failed, the U.S. was humiliated, Castro soon routed the invading Cuban exile forces. But it was understandable, because everyone was telling Kennedy apart from Senator William Fulbright of Arkansas, everyone was telling Kennedy to go ahead. That was not true. We know that now. There were a number of dissenters. So, for example, Chester Bowles, who's the number two man at the State Department, but there were others too. Kennedy chose to disregard that advice. It was clearly a tough blow to John F. Kennedy on the world stage. I wanted to hear more about how the disaster affected JFK in a personal sense. It's really interesting to think about it in terms of the emotional impact on Kennedy, because he'd had a charmed life, uh, not always personally, you know, he had dreadful health issues, really serious health issues, life-threatening health health issues, but politically he'd led a charmed life and he never really knew failure in that way. Uh, There is a story of the night the Bay of Pigs failed, of him going out into the White House grounds in the early hours, three or four in the morning, just walking by himself. And I also came across one account of, of an aide sort of peeking into the Lincoln bedroom or through the keyhole or something like that and seeing JFK crying his eyes out in Jackie's arms. So I think it really, he just wasn't used to that kind of political defeat. And, you know, the big question for Kennedy once the Bay of Pigs fails is what do I do about Castro now? And his liberal advisors, like Adelaide Stevenson, who is, is an ambassador at the United Nations, but there are others, say to him, look, just just calm down. Just, just stop trying to use force to overthrow Castro. You can use the Organization of American States to diplomatically isolate him, maybe economic sanctions. But, you know, if Castro continues to mis- misgovern Cuba for another decade, it really doesn't matter. But then he's got other advisors who are saying to him, no, we need to get rid of Castro. We need to do everything we can. And Kennedy resolves that issue ends that debate, uh, we can date it very specifically, on the 5th of May. On the 5th of May, 1961, so two weeks after the failure of the Bay of Pigs, there's a National Security Council meeting in which Kennedy defines post-Bay of Pigs policy towards Cuba, and it is to do everything in his power to overthrow Castro, with the exception of a direct military invasion. But even that was to be retained as a policy option to be considered down the line. And that does indeed define a subsequent policy towards Castro. I'll just say this. The one good thing that comes out of the Bay of Pigs is it causes Kennedy to be sceptical towards his generals and the CIA. He sees them as, as excessively gung-ho um, and, uh, and not reliable. And so from that point on, he's much more careful at you know, screening their advice and being prepared to eject it, which is what happens during the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's the one good thing that comes out of the Bay of Pigs. But after the Bay of Pigs, Kennedy, I mean, the most important thing he does is in November 61, he establishes Operation Mongoose, which is a top secret CIA program to overthrow Castro. It's the biggest CIA operation in history up to that point in time in terms of the amount of resources devoted to it. The aim of it was to trigger an anti-Castro uprising. So like the Bay of Pigs, actually, but this time to send a U.S military forces to make sure the uprising succeeded. There's contingency planning in the Defence Department for an an airstrike on Cuba or an invasion or a blockade. Those plans are constantly updated. Uh, In early 62, a complete economic embargo is imposed. 
Cuba is also kicked out of the Organization of American States. So there's economic pressure, there's diplomatic pressure, and also there are ongoing assassination attempts. And it is an extraordinary thing. It seems impossible, but it just was the case that basically this was a case of the US government hiring the mob to carry out American foreign policy. So mobsters like Sam Giancana and Johnny Rosselli had been recruited to affect the assassination of Castro. At least one, maybe two assassination plots were scheduled around the time of the Bay of Pigs, which might be one reason why Kennedy gave the go-ahead for the invasion of the Bay of Pigs, if you assume he knew about the assassination attempts. I'll just say this. So, yeah, some, again, some, some people say, well, it's not clear Kennedy knew about the assassination attempts. I think it's almost certain that, that he did. There's evidence, I think, which makes pretty clear he did. And also to note, despite his image as an intellectual, his favourite author was Ian Fleming. And the James, he loved the James Bond stories. And he actually met Ian Fleming during the 1960 campaign. And he asked Ian Fleming's advice on how to handle Castro. And Fleming came out with all these extraordinary, fantastical, Bondian ideas about what he could do. So he was, Kennedy was fascinated by the whole world of espionage and spying. So I think he was actually, rather than being eth- ethically appalled, I think he was kind of intrigued by the whole world of spying, espionage, and assassination as an instrument of that. Let's linger for a moment longer on these assassination attempts, as I think it really helps us to understand a little better just what Fidel Castro and Cuba represented in the early 1960s to John F. Kennedy and his administration. Here's Alex again. I think you can really see that in the setting up of Operation Mongoose, uh, this enormous CIA operation based in Florida, which, you know, dedicated itself to removing Castro, and indeed we do now know, to assassinating him. Um, That was denied at the time, but indeed it has subsequently become extremely clear. And some of the methods it came up with, Ian Fleming was indeed consulted on some of this uh, by Kennedy and by Alan Dulles at some points, and you can certainly see a little bit of cue in some of these operations. Um, So, you know, they included things like coming up with poison cigars, um, an exploding seashell, because Fidel was a very keen diver. So the idea was he would dive and then pick up this seashell. But even at that point, the CIA were like, well, how are we going to make him pick it up? Is it going to have a neon sign on it and play Beethoven's Fifth? They had plans, you know, some huge plans, like for an invasion, um, were drawn up at various points. And then sort of more uh, amusing minor plans, such as printing toilet paper with Fidel Castro's face and dropping that over Cuba um, for people to use. So all sorts of different levels of things. But what was happening quite routinely by late 1961, early 1962, were kind of small-scale terrorist attacks staged by the CIA in Cuba. So blowing up a bridge, blowing up a kind of installation or whatever. And actually the feeling among the people that did these afterwards is that they were wildly counterproductive because generally speaking, Fidel Castro was then extremely popular in Cuba because he had defeated the invasion. So there was a very, you know, what would happen is that these people who blew stuff up would very quickly be found and arrested, paraded on television, as yet more evidence of Yankee perfidy and all of this. And, you know, effectively, that really allowed Fidel to build his brand as the great defender of Cuba against these invaders. And really, it didn't achieve very much. You know, you blow up a bridge, you blow up a depot or something, it doesn't do anything to destabilize Castro. What it does actually is give him yet more publicity to build his own image. So, you know, these kind of attacks really were not doing anything apart from shoring him up in power more and more and more during that time coming into the period of the missile crisis. As well as the unintended consequence of shoring up support for Castro in many quarters, allowing the leader to point to US interference, Mark suggests that these insubordination attempts had further implications for the crisis to come. 
For many years after the Cuban Missile Crisis took place, there was in the West no real debate, or hardly any debate, on the causes of the Cuban Missile Crisis. The assumption was it was due to Khrushchev's belligerence. This decision he made to install nuclear missiles in Cuba, that was obviously that reckless, aggressive decision. That was the cause of the Cuban Missile Crisis. By the time you get to the end of the 1980s and into the 1990s, you have scholars, I mean, really you know, important, credible historians arguing that, in fact, Kennedy deserves some of the blame uh, because Khrushchev decided in the spring of 1962 that he was going to send missiles to Cuba. And the argument that some historians made is, was that a response to Kennedy's aggression towards Castro? So it's a sequential argument. If Kennedy hadn't tried to topple Castro at the Bay of Pigs, hadn't imposed economic sanctions, diplomatic sanctions... Uh, so on and so on, so forth. Is it the case that Khrushchev would not have put nuclear missiles in Cuba and therefore the Cuban Missile Crisis wouldn't have happened? So my own take on it is Khrushchev still deserves a good chunk of the blame because he had he just sent troops to Cuba, which is what he did do anyway. There are 42,000 Soviet troops on the island of Cuba by the time of the missile crisis. Had he just sent troops, that would have been enough to deter a US invasion because a US invasion would have meant World War III. So he could have defended Cuba without taking the world to the brink of nuclear war. But nevertheless, that issue has to be considered. If Kennedy had not carried out such a belligerent policy towards Cuba in 61, early 62, could it have been the case that Khrushchev wouldn't have sent missiles to Cuba and therefore there would have been no Cuban missile crisis? We'll return to these ideas of belligerence and blame shortly. But first, I want to turn to the Soviet perspective. How did Khrushchev see these acts of US aggression towards Cuba? I put this question to our third expert, William Taubman, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Amherst College in Massachusetts and the author of a Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Nikita Khrushchev. Well, Khrushchev saw the Bay of Pigs as a sign that the United States was out to get Castro. And although it had failed in this first attempt and failed almost shamefully by not backing it with sufficient force, that the U.S. was bound to try again. And there was plenty of evidence, or so it seemed, that the U.S. was building up to such a second attempt. There were military exercises off Cuba seeming to rehearse an invasion. There were attempts to poison Castro, which a secret agency affiliated with the CIA undertook. There was so much evidence that in later conferences about uh, U.S.-Soviet relations under Kennedy and Khrushchev, which I took part in, uh, people like Robert McNamara, uh, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, and Ted Sorensen, the uh, Kennedy advisor, all said, you know, I can see how Khrushchev could think that we were going to invade Cuba again. So that's how he saw it. Khrushchev saw Cuba was threatened, but Kennedy was weak, and so he might be able to deter him. And that's going to lead us eventually to talk about the missiles that Khrushchev put in Cuba. So before we get to the placement of these missiles then, what does Khrushchev make of of Castro, the man, I suppose, and what does he make of Castro's declaration of his alignment with communism and the Soviet Union? This is an interesting and surprising story because when Castro and his men came out of the mountains, Sierra Madre, as I think they were called, and took over Cuba, the Soviets thought they were just peasant revolutionaries, nationalists, They didn't think they were communists, and hence they didn't respond with all 
uh, all the enthusiasm that you might have expected. But they were pleased. The Soviets were very pleased because here was here were revolutionaries taking over in a third world country without Soviet troops to support them, unlike in Eastern Europe where Soviet troops put communists in power in Romania after the war and Bulgaria, places like that. And furthermore, the Soviets were old men like Khrushchev were positively nostalgic to encounter these exciting, enthusiastic, young revolutionaries. And so when Castro declared after a while that he was and had been a communist, the Soviets quickly, Khrushchev quickly bought that story and became even more uh, uh, enthusiastic about the Cubans and more determined now than they had been in the beginning to protect them, to support them both economically and militarily. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Before we hear more on Khrushchev's decision to install the Soviet missiles in Cuba, I'd like to explore this idea of blame a little more. As you heard Mark explain earlier, for many years after the crisis, there was a widespread assumption in the West that the standoff had been sparked by Soviet aggression. There is another factor that we haven't yet covered, and it loomed large. In 1959, the USA had agreed the placement of American Jupiter ballistic missiles in Turkey. This meant that by 1961, there were American nuclear warheads within range of Moscow. I asked Mark what he makes of this. It's, I mean, the whole issue of US missiles in 
Turkey, Jupiter missiles in Turkey, it's a really important issue because it would seem to represent such a clear, basically hypocritical double standard to take the position where the Soviets can't put missiles uh, in Cuba, 90 miles from our coast, but we can put missiles, and we have put missiles, uh, essentially on the Soviet border in Turkey. And, you know, there's and the Soviets were, were very aware of this. Um, and what the Kennedy administration thought, however, not just JFK, but his advisors, is that there was a difference. And the difference was that the US had publicly announced that it was putting missiles in Turkey, then did put missiles in Turkey. Uh, the Soviets hadn't done that with the missiles in Cuba. It had not been publicly announced. Uh, they'd been installed in a, you know, surreptitious, clandestine fashion. To Kennedy administration officials, when they find out about this on the 16th of October, 1962, it suggests to them that there are sort of sinister motives behind the deployment. Otherwise, why not just announce it publicly? And and later, uh, you know, some of Kennedy's closest advisors, I think including Ted Sorensen, his great speechwriter, McGeorge Bundy, his national security advisor, had said that had Khrushchev announced publicly, say at the United Nations, that he was putting missiles in Cuba uh, and that this was comparable to US missiles in Turkey, it would have put the Kennedy administration in a really difficult position and maybe in a position where it would not have been able to force the removal of those missiles. But, you know, it's an important issue because at the end of the day, when when, the, when a settlement is forged uh, to end the Cuban Missile Crisis by the 28th of October, uh, a key part of that settlement is the Kennedy administration's private agreement to remove its missiles from Turkey. So if Kennedy felt that the US placement of nuclear missiles in Turkey shouldn't be regarded as a provocation, how did Khrushchev regard it? Well, that was a sign of American arrogance uh, and American dominance in the whole early post-war period. I mean, during these same years, we had been flying U-2 spy planes over the Soviet Union over and over again. They, Again, they hadn't protested because for a while they didn't want to look as if they were protesting something they couldn't do anything about. But finally, they shot one down in the famous U-2 flyover on May 1st and Khrushchev blew his top and the scheduled summit in Paris in April 1960 was cancelled. But this was a whole period when the United States got got to thinking that it could pretty much do what it wanted uh, as long as it didn't trigger a nuclear war and that Turkish missiles weren't going to do that. Despite Kennedy's intentions, clearly in Khrushchev's eyes, the Turkish missiles signalled the need for a change in situation. Let's hear more about the Soviet Premier's motives. Now, you mentioned that Khrushchev is a man of grand schemes. Can we talk about um, Khrushchev's scheme to place nuclear weapons in Cuba? The usual litany of reasons that people give, assume these were Khrushchev's motivations, there were several of them. One, to put pressure on the United States to make an accommodation on Berlin. Khrushchev had begun the Berlin crisis in 1958. Uh, He had threatened uh, Berlin He had not gotten what he wanted, which was basically the Western recognition of the East German regime. Uh, And so he had put the Berlin crisis on hold. But the first motivation that is mentioned is to press Kennedy. And we know that Khrushchev had scheduled a meeting with Kennedy, or he was coming to Washington in November of 62. And the assumption is he then would have sprung the secret 
that there were missiles in Cuba and said, okay, let's talk about Berlin. The second motive is Khrushchev had discovered that the United States had a vast margin of nuclear superiority, many more intercontinental missiles capable of striking the Soviet Union than he, Khrushchev, had capable of striking the United States. And putting these medium-range missiles in Cuba would rectify that imbalance. A third motive, which I heard the Russians give insistently on many occasions afterwards, was they put the missiles in Cuba to deter a second invasion of Cuba, which is a very interesting notion because if these missiles were intermediate and medium range and capable of striking Washington, you have to ask yourself, what would be the logic? How could that deter an invasion of Cuba? Did they really think that if the U.S. invaded Cuba, that they would give the order to fire these missiles in Cuba and obliterate Washington? That doesn't seem likely. But as I came to understand it, that was Khrushchev's way of thinking. He didn't think these missiles would be used. He thought they would frighten the United States and in frightening them, deter them from invading Cuba. Now, there are other possible motives too. One is that by 1962, Khrushchev was struggling at home. His program was in some disarray. He was beginning to encounter criticism, and he thought a striking triumph of this kind might reestablish some of his authority if it was indeed beginning to fray. My summary of motives is that it was not one or two or three or four. It was all of them. And that's why in my chapter on Cuba, I say in Khrushchev's eyes, this the Cuban missiles were a Cuban cure-all for all of these problems. But I also say it was a cure-all that ended up curing nothing. And what about Khrushchev's final decision to install these missiles? The striking thing about that is he pretty much made that decision on his own. He consulted his colleagues in the presidium of the Central Committee, but in a way that encouraged them to simply say, yes, yes, brilliant, yes. What he did was, at the meetings, he spoke first and said what he wanted to do. And they, if they knew what was good for them, would would say, yes, that's a fine idea. And that's what they said. He had two advisors in particular who were experts on the United States. One was the Soviet ambassador to Washington, Anatoly Dobrynin. The other was Khrushchev's own foreign policy advisor and former English interpreter, Oleg Trayanovsky, who had grown up in the United States when his father was ambassador there in the 30s, who had attended the Sidwell Friends School in Washington. But he didn't tell Dobrynin. And when he finally mentioned it to Tryonovsky, and Tryonovsky very tentatively expressed some doubts, Khrushchev waved them off. So he made the decision in a way that guaranteed it would be approved, uh, but he was the main initiator of it. And later that helps to explain why the people who reluctantly agreed with him blamed him for the whole fiasco. And I'm not sure if it's apocryphal, but is there a, um, a story of him looking across the sea at t- towards Turkey where the Jupiter missiles were? 
Yes, you're right. There was. And in fact, I think that I left that out. That's another, another motive. The Americans had put their intermediate range missiles in Turkey capable of striking Russia. And when they did, the Soviets had not liked it, but accepted it. You know, they hadn't made a big deal of it. So when Khrushchev thought of putting the missiles in Cuba, he was thinking, well, you know, this will be an answer to the Americans who put missiles in Turkey. And since they didn't, we didn't protest when they did, they won't protest when we put them in Cuba. And there was indeed a moment standing on the shore of the Black Sea. I think he was with Marshal Malinovsky, uh, one of the marshals of the Soviet military, and he looked out there and said something about this and certainly was thinking about it. So, the decision is made and the secret plan that will bring the world to the brink is set in motion. How much was Cuba involved in this fateful choice? Let's return to Alex. So when the missile crisis started, it was Khrushchev's idea very much to do it, to station missiles in Cuba. It was response to several things. Um, First of all, to the US stationing missiles in places like Turkey around his own border of the Soviet Union. But it was also... He had specific concerns about Cuba, um, one of which was that he was worried that young Cuban leaders, particularly Che Guevara, were getting very close to Beijing. They were getting very close to the Chinese leadership. And he wanted to really kind of, you know, reassert Soviet primacy with Cuba. Um, And, you know, he also was concerned about Kennedy. So there were lots of factors behind Khrushchev's decision to station missiles in Cuba. And the way he put it, very colourful Khrushchev language was, why not throw a hedgehog down Uncle Sam's pants? So the hedgehog was to be nuclear missiles that he would station in Cuba. And interestingly, if we look at the record, we can see that Fidel Castro was incredibly worried about this. He wasn't keen to have missiles in Cuba in this secret operation. Um, he was very concerned about it. They, they had a lot of discussions within the Cuban government about accepting them. They decided that they must accept them, um, the missiles, because in the cause of, you know, international brotherhood with these other um socialist nations, they must accept them. But they were very unhappy about it. And you can see so twice Fidel sent his most important emissaries to Khrushchev to discuss whether these missiles should be kept secret. So he sent Raul Castro to Moscow, first of all, to try and persuade Khrushchev to make the deal public, because he said, look, you know, if we're not doing anything illegal, if it's what the US have done in Turkey, then why can we not be public about this? And so he sent Raul to Moscow for two weeks, and Raul did not manage to persuade Khrushchev to make it public. He then sent Che Guevara to Yalta in the Black Sea to talk to Khrushchev again, to again to try and make him make this missile deal public. So you can see by the fact that he was sending such important people that there was actually great concern among the Cubans about not just about having the missiles, but about keeping them secret. You know, very much the Cuban line remained. Why can't we just tell them this is what we're doing? Because the Cubans knew keeping these things secret would be the problem, would look like, uh, you know, an unmanageable, difficult, you know, political move. So the Cuban line was always, can we make it public? And Khrushchev repeatedly stuck to, no, this must be done in secret. It must be a fait accompli by the time the Americans find out. And really, I think, you know, you can say that the Cubans were probably right, that that was a pretty disastrous miscalculation by Khrushchev to keep those missiles secret. And with that, the stage is set. We've had this secret placing of the missiles. How aware, if at all, is JFK and his administration of any of this? And when does it become clear? So it's in the summer and early autumn of 62 that the Soviet Union carries out Operation Anadir, which is an operation to send uh, uh, troops, conventional military equipment 
um, but also nuclear weapons to Cuba. The nuclear weapon part of the deployment doesn't get going until September. That a Soviet military buildup is taking place on the island of Cuba is very well known in the United States. The newspapers are reporting it. Congress is talking about it. Uh, the Kennedy administ- administration is attacked a lot by Republicans for being too soft in his response to this Soviet military buildup in Cuba. And what's also noteworthy there is that what's upcoming are the congressional elections in November. So Republicans calculate they can use this issue to damage Kennedy and the Democrats so that they're more successful in those congressional elections. But the assumption underpinning all all of that public political debate is that there were no nuclear weapons. So the, the Kennedy administration just doesn't know about that. And they just assume that Khrushchev wouldn't do that. And part of the reason is because behind the scenes, the Soviets tell Kennedy administration officials that we're not going to do anything dramatic in Cuba, certainly not before the congressional elections. So they just assume nothing like that will happen. It would just seem so dangerous and so provocative. The US has uh, these uh, spy planes that can fly over Cuba, high altitude, take photographs. One is sent over on the 14th of October, 1962, the plane takes photographs, they're analysed at CIA headquarters at Langley, and what those photos show, uh, incontrovertibly, is that the Soviet Union has put nuclear missiles in Cuba. John Kennedy is lying in bed around 9am on Tuesday, the 16th of October 1962, when his national security advisor, who's a guy called McGeorge Bundy, uh, knocks on his door, goes to his bedroom and says to Kennedy, you know, the thing we've been worried about situation in Cuba, what the Soviets might do, it's happened. There are, there are nuclear missiles in Cuba. So that is it. That is the start of JFK's knowledge of the missiles in Cuba, and it's the start of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which will go on for 13 days. Um, it will go on until the 28th of October. There'll be other issues to deal with later, but, uh, but basically the Cuban Missile Crisis lasts those 13 days, but it starts with JFK lying in bed being told by his national security uh, advisor that there are uh, missiles in Cuba. And, you know, I think Kennedy was pretty shocked. Uh, Robert Kennedy is informed immediately, and he's furious. You know, he always had this very protective, sort of clannish attitude towards family and his brother. And so he just utters a whole series of swear words when he finds out he's furious. But that is the start of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the morning of Tuesday, the 16th of October, 1962. Next episode, we'll witness the Kennedy's fury at the discovery of the missiles, track JFK's early tactics for dealing with the impending emergency, and how he approached the crisis in its precarious and top-secret first phase. Thanks for listening. This podcast was written and researched by me, Eleanor Evans, and produced by Brittany Colley. Thanks to my experts for this episode, Alex von Tenzelman, Mark White, and William Taubman. Additional checks by Daniel Adamson. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.